Well, we are going to be in Colossians 1, starting in verse 24, so if you have your Bibles, you can make your way there. As you do, I would remind you that Jesus said, go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Most evangelicals agree that is the mission of the church. That is what we are to be doing. But is that all that God has instructed us concerning the mission of the church? Does he only tell us what to do and then leave it to us to kind of figure it out on our own? Does God say, I want you to get from point A to point B. I don't really care how you get there, what path you take, but just get there. Make the disciples, make sure that they're in the church. Or does God care about how we do it as well? Well, there are many passages in the New Testament that make it clear that God cares not only about the what of our ministry, but the how of ministry. And this morning's passage is among those. So let's read together Colossians 1, 24 to 29, where Paul gives us a model of what Christian ministry is and what it should look like. Colossians 1, 24 to 29. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Amen. Father, we pray now that you would come by your spirit and uh, open our eyes to understand the the truth of your word, to be convicted, to be strengthened, uh, that we might better know you, that we might more uh, fully obey you and glorify you with our lives. Lord, that we would see the glory of Christ in this text. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, my sermon, and hopefully the text as well, is summarized by the statement that authentic Christian ministry is self-sacrificing, word-centered, and sanctification-oriented. So if you're taking notes and you want the main point and the outline, there it is. Authentic Christian ministry is self-sacrificing, word-centered, and sanctification-oriented. And I know Ben really likes three-point sermons that are alliterated, so just for him, this is the manner, the method, and the motive of ministry. So let's begin with the first point. That's the manner of ministry, that authentic Christian ministry is self-sacrificing. This comes from verse 24 to 25a. Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings, For your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, for the sake of his body, that is the church, 
of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. And if you're, you were just reading this passage on your own, I hope that you would notice and highlight at least two points of emphasis. The first is suffering. Paul rejoices in his sufferings. He says he is filling up the afflictions of Christ. And the second point of emphasis is that ministry is for others. He says he rejoices in his sufferings for your sake, that he is filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the body. The stewardship of the gospel was given to Paul for them. Everything that Paul does as a minister of the gospel, he does for others. In fact, the good of others so heavily weighs upon the mind and the affections of Paul that it transforms his sufferings from a source of anguish to a source of joy. And this is not because Paul enjoys sufferings for the sake of suffering, but because he knows that through his temporary sufferings, the eternal good of others is being advanced and promoted. He knows that God has sovereignly appointed that his sacrificial love for others be the means by which the gospel goes forth into a lost and dying world, and thus the means by which others are saved. The pain of his suffering was redeemed by the joy of their welfare. And thus, it made it worth it. And mind you, these are not petty afflictions that Paul is talking about. Paul recounts some of his sufferings in 2 Corinthians. And he says, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked at night. In a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from all these other things, there is the daily pressure of me, on me of the church, my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Paul knew what it meant to suffer and to suffer greatly. And yet as Paul considers all these things, he is not able merely to grit and bear it, but to actually rejoice in them. Why? Simply because it was for the sake of others for the sake of others hearing the gospel, for the sake of others being saved, for the sake of others finding their eternal and abiding rest and joy in Christ. And this is the nature of Christian ministry. It is self-sacrificial. It is oriented for the sake of others. But remember that Paul is not the bedrock of our model for ministry. He is not the example the sacrificial love of Paul for sinners is but a tiny little ember floating from the great hearth of Christ's love for sinners. Paul is a little stream branching off from the great headwaters of Christ and the incarnation and the cross. It is Jesus himself who sets the pattern for the ministry of the church. And that's why Paul himself always points back to Jesus. Like in Philippians 2, a passage we are familiar with. It's of 
Christ that Paul writes, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It is the fixation of Paul upon the love of Christ revealed in the gospel that empowered and enabled him to sacrificially love others. And it is the same for us. It is the fixation of our gaze upon the love of Christ revealed in the gospel that enables us and empowers us to lay down our rights, to lay down our privileges, and to selflessly love others for the sake of the gospel. So if we ever want to love like Christ, if we want to do Christian ministry, not just in the church, but in the home, in our relationships, to minister as an ambassador of Christ, we must be people who are fixated and consumed by the love of Christ revealed in the gospel. Paul goes on and says, And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. And no doubt, this is a difficult verse, and there might be various opinions of how we might interpret it. But what is obvious is that Paul is not saying that there is something lacking in the atonement of Christ, as if somehow the sufferings of Christ to save sinners were not quite sufficient and they needed to be supplemented by Paul. Nothing is more unbiblical and even blasphemous than to suggest that that is what Paul is referring to. I assure you that when Jesus said, it is finished, he meant it. When Christ, the spotless Lamb of God, died for sinners, the wrath of God was forever satisfied for his people. The righteous requirement of the law was met. Scripture says, by a single sacrifice, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That's good news for sinners. Amen? There is only one sacrifice that saves sinners. And it never needs to be repeated. It never needs to be improved upon. It was made once for all time by Christ. We need only to trust in its sufficiency. But we dare never talk about improving upon it or adding to it. So we know that that's what Paul doesn't mean. But I haven't answered the question of what Paul does mean by this. And the way that I presently understand this is that the thing that is lacking in Christ's afflictions is the present and visible, tangible display of Christ's sacrificial love for sinners to them. That is, the sacrificial love of Christ is not only to be spoken of, but to be displayed and embodied by his ambassadors, by his body, the church. Peter says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. And of course, we don't seek to duplicate the cross, but we do seek to embody the sacrificial love of Christ that led him to the cross. 
And this is how John Piper understands the text, and he substantiates his argument by looking at Philippians 2, 29 to 30. So let's look there real quick if you have your Bibles. In context, Paul recently received a financial gift from the church at Philippi, and he received it through Epaphroditus. And there in Philippians 2, Paul is now writing to the Philippians, about Epaphroditus, and he says, So receive him in the Lord with all joy. Honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. And those words, complete what was lacking, are the same exact words in the Greek as fill up what is lacking in Colossians. And so Piper argues that the thing that was lacking was not their love or support for Paul, but it was the tangible demonstration of that love. Paul says, you were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity to display that love and concern. So the Philippians loved Paul, but what was lacking was their demonstration, the communication of that love in Deed, which is what Epaphroditus nearly died to fill up and to complete in their service and their love for Paul. And in the same way, there's nothing deficient about the sufferings of Christ's afflictions in any way, inherently. But what our task is, is the present communication and even presentation of that love, not only with our words, but also with the deeds of sacrificial love. And I know this is strong language that Paul is using, but listen to, to Paul elsewhere describe his ministry. This comes from 2 Corinthians 5.10. He says, We are always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Carrying in the body the death of Jesus was not some private devotional reality between Paul and God is clearly that it was a public demonstration to others. It was so that the life of Christ would be manifested in their bodies. It was communicating something to whom they ministered as he carried about in his body, referring to his sufferings that he endured for their sake. And I think it's the same thing in our context of Colossians 1. God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And we as the body of Christ communicate that love to the world, not merely with words, but also with purposed acts of sacrificial love as little embers ourselves floating from the hearth of Christ's love, as little streams branching out into the world, receiving or showing that love that we received, showing that kind of love that we received. And what was the kind of love that with which we have been loved? It was a sacrificial kind of love, a love that willingly lays down its life for the sake of its sheep, a love that willingly suffers for the good of another. That's how we have been loved. And so if we are to Minister in the name of Christ. We must minister with that same kind of love and to embody that in our relationships towards others. 
And perhaps some of you are, are worried that I'm gonna, about to go social gospel on you, but just wait until the next point. Uh, but until then, let's consider what this might mean for us. Certainly, Paul had a un- unique stewardship as an apostle, but each and every one of us has our own stewardship that God has given us. He's given all of us time. He's given all of us talents. He's given all of us money and resources. He's given us families and friends. And what we must realize is that whatever God has given to us, he has given to us for the sake of others. Everything you have is to be stewarded for the sake of his glory and the good of others. So husbands and fathers, God has given you a wife not so that you can, so that she can serve you, but so that you can learn to sacrificially love her. You have a stewardship in the home. Authority has been given to you, but that authority has given, been given to you for the sake of others. Parents, it ought not surprise us that raising children calls for a tremendous amount of sacrificial love. I don't think I'm stretching the application even to say to mothers that in your motherhood, you are in one sense filling up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of your children. Now, that might feel like, oh, that's, that's a really exegetical stretch, but it, only if you fail to realize that as a mother, you are called to embody the love of Christ to your children and for your children. God has given you a ministry and a stewardship there. And the fact that it is hard, the fact that it does daily require from you sacrifice and dying to self for the good of others shows that you're doing it right. It means that you're loving them with the same kind of love with which you have been loved. Not merely so that you can make functional members of society, but that so you can make disciples of Jesus Christ in the way that God has ordained for us to make disciples, by showing the love with which we've been loved. Timothy became the most trusted co-laborer of Paul because he had a sincere faith, a faith which Paul says, dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you. And he exhorted Timothy to continue in what he had learned and firmly believe, knowing from whom you learned it, Not only what he had learned, but from whom. And that's in the plural. So it's not just talking about Paul. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And some women will begrudge the sacrifices that motherhood demands from them. And others will learn uh, that by those sacrifices, they are embodying Christ's love and embodying his grace, winning their children to Christ. What a ministry you have been given. What an opportunity. It is the front lines of the mission field. Every marriage, every child, every home, every job is a stewardship from God. And I would just think, ask you to think broadly as you consider your life your relationships, and all the things that you have, are you more like a winemaker 
harvesting the vineyard of your life and and gathering it all up into the press and then being sure to crush every single grape, trying to extract from it every ounce of pleasure and self-gratification that you can? Or are you more like the grapes themselves, gladly willing to be placed in the the press and crushed for the sake of others? Do you wake up and say, Lord, extract every ounce of love and service and worship from my life, even if it means that I must be trodden in the the press? And in marriage and in family, you are daily confronted by this. But young people, I would urge you to consider this now. You have time, you have freedoms, you have opportunities. And every day, whether you're aware of it or not, you must make the decision whether you're going to use those things for yourself or for the sake of others. And I would exhort you to build a foundation of biblical knowledge while you're young so that you can be a source of wisdom and truth to others for the rest of your life in the things that matter most. Don't waste this season of your life on trivial nonsense. Redeem it for the sake of the glory of God and the good of others. And corporately, as a church, we must consider not merely how to build our own little kingdom of Cow Creek, but how we can steward what God has given us for the advance of the gospel and loving others sacrificially. I could dwell here for a while, but we need to keep moving. So first, Authentic Christian ministry is by nature, the manner of it is sacrificial. But secondly, we see that Christian ministry is word-centered. This carries us from verse 25 to 28. Paul says, The church of which I became a minister, according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of his, of the glory of this ministry, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. I'll just stop there for now. So what is the foundational calling that Paul had as a minister of the church? What was the binding obligation of his stewardship that was given to him? It was not to be a social activist. It was not to be a community director. It was not to be a program coordinator. It was one thing, to make the word of God fully known. And Paul did do other stuff. Paul healed, certainly, a lot of people. He even cared for the poor. In in fact, Galatians 2.10, after meeting the other apostles in Jerusalem, he says, Uh, only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing that I was eager to do. So this was something that mattered to Paul. He did other things. But the one thing that he had to do was to proclaim the word. This was a principal obligation and the binding responsibility that he had as a minister of the church. And of course, again, this has special significance For Paul, as an apostle, he was laying the foundation of truth for the church of all times and all places. But that, and that stewardship is not given to me, it's not given to Jeremy, it's not given to John Piper or John MacArthur or anyone else alive today. So the application 
is a little different, but the principle remains the same for the church today. The fundamental calling of ministers is to make the word of God fully known. The only difference is that while the apostles were giving new revelation to make known, our job is to make known what has already been revealed. But as we read on, we notice that when Paul says, make the word of God fully known, he's not merely referring to the whole canon of scripture, but he has something else more particular in mind. He says it is to make the word of God fully known, namely, verse 26, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this ministry, mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And many of you know that Ephesians and Colossians are somewhat parallel letters. And thus we kind of have a parallel passage in Ephesians 3, which helps illumine the text for us here in Colossians 1. And so I just want to read that for you in Ephesians 3, 1. Paul says, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I've written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And I'm sure just as you hear it, you can identify many similarities without my help. Paul is describing his ministry, the stewardship that was given to him for them, the mystery that was made known to him. And in Colossians, he simply is speaking to Gentiles, and he says, this mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory. But in Ephesians, he unpacks that a little bit more. And he says this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Well, what's so mysterious about all of that? When Paul uses mystery, he's not saying it's confusing or bewildering. As the context itself indicates, Paul means he's bringing clarity to something that was previously unclear. The thing that was not clear was the Gentile inclusion in the covenant people of God. It was something that was hinted at. It was foreshadowed in different and sometimes subtle ways. But in Christ, the truth that once remained shrouded and, and kind of clear, unclear was now brought forth in clarity. The mystery not previously made known was that it was always God's purpose and plan that the Abrahamic covenant be not merely for the physical offspring of Abraham, but for all who would follow in the footsteps of faith of Abraham and be his spiritual offspring. The Davidic covenant would establish not merely a kingdom for Israelites, but a universal kingdom for all nations. The new covenant was not just for the house of Israel and Judah, but for Gentiles near and far who would be grafted into the people of God and receive the benefits and the mercies of knowing Christ. Ephesians 2.12 says, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated 
from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You have been brought near in Christ. Now the covenants that you were once estranged from and alienated from are yours. The promises of yours, the commonwealth of Israel, all the purposes and plans and promises of God are yours in Christ. Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body. They partake in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And notice how it comes to us. It's through the gospel. So Paul was tasked to preach the word, but the word in particular was the gospel of grace to Gentiles who once were formally condemned and alienated from God and to enjoy the fruit of their salvation, which was the abiding presence of Christ in us and the hope of glory. So now coming back to Colossians 1.29, Paul concludes by saying, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. That's what Paul did. He proclaimed Christ. And I hope you can understand something of my difficulty in outlining this text because I went back and forth. Should I say the second point is word-centered? Because Paul says that his stewardship was to make the word of God fully known. Or should I say it's gospel-centered because the particular word that Paul was to make known was the gospel of grace to alienated Gentiles. Or should I say Christ-centered because the sum and substance of the gospel is Christ and the person and work of what he's done. And quite frankly, I don't know which of those is best, but what I do know is that for Christian, for ministry to be authentic Christian ministry, it must be founded upon making truth known. And the preeminent truth that we are to be engaged in making known is the hope of the gospel for sinners like us. And there is no gospel without the Son of God, slain for sinners, risen from the dead, ascended on high, now proclaiming forgiveness and repentance, repentance and forgiveness of sins to all who trust in him. Therefore, out of all the things that Christians may or may not do and the church may or may not do in the name of Christ, the one thing that we must do is talk about Jesus. Him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom. Christian ministry must involve words. St. Francis of Assisi is purportedly uh, known to have said, preach the gospel always, and when necessary, use words. That's nonsense. Preach the gospel always, and then live out, embody the kind of sacrificial love that you preach with how you relate to people, even if that means filling up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ even if it means suffering for the sake of others. And as a side note, as I see this text, warning everyone, how many times have you heard people boast about the fact that their church doesn't talk about judgment and they don't talk about the anger of God, that they don't talk about hell, and that's a point in which they pride themselves. And even if it's not something that they explicitly state, it's the practice of many evangelical churches. But notice that insofar as we do that, we are 
explicitly and directly deviating the model of ministry that is given to us in the scriptures. Paul says, I proclaim Christ. Yes, there is forgiveness. There is hope. There is forgiveness of sins. There is good news to be had in Jesus Christ. But I also warn everyone of the consequences of rejecting that good news. And so if you're not trusting in Christ this morning, then be warned. Scripture says the day is coming when this same Jesus who died for sinners and rose that you might be forgiven will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. I would not be a faithful minister if I neglected to warn each and every one of you that today is the day of salvation. Today the the door of mercy is open, but tomorrow it might not be, not for you at least. And this is why the author of Hebrews pleads with his listeners again and again and again, today, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as in the rebellion. And I plead the same thing with you. If you remain in rebellion against your creator, today, I would say, humble yourself. Confess your sin and trust that Christ can and that he will save you from your sin. He died for sinners. So thus far we've seen that authentic Christian ministry must be self-sacrificing. It must be centered upon the word. And lastly, we see that it's sanctification-oriented. This comes primarily from the final clause of verse 28. But let's read 28 and 29 together. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Why? What's the goal? What's the end? That we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So, of course, in one sense, the ultimate goal of all ministry is the preeminence of Christ. We saw that a couple weeks ago, earlier in Colossians. That's ultimate. But in relation to uh, the people to whom we are ministry, what is our goal? It is that we might present everyone mature in Christ. Thus, Christian ministry must be oriented towards sanctification, the process by which we become mature in Christ. The ministry of the church is not to be oriented towards drawing a crowd. It's not to be oriented towards fighting in culture wars. It's not to be primarily oriented towards addressing social needs. It's not to be oriented towards creating a community and finding a sense of belonging, although it's important. None of those are bad things, but they are not the primary aim of Christian ministry. The goal is that people, that we might be mature in Christ. And what is that? It's simply to be more like Jesus, more patient, more kind, more loving, more holy, more righteous, more joyful, more selfless, more humble, more disciplined. And for all these attributes, not merely to exist in us, but to exist in us precisely because of our relationship to Christ and our knowledge of Christ So when we ask the question, 
Well, is the church growing? Our primary concern should not be how many people are in the church on a Sunday morning, but are we growing in our conformity to Christ? Individually, corporately, are we growing in our patience? Are we becoming more joyful? Are we becoming more loving? The primary consideration of how we structure and shape the life and ministries of the church should be, well, does it help cultivate Christian maturity? I would hope that as you sit under the preaching and teaching at Cow Creek, and as you work to apply it to your life, you, became, you become not merely more knowledgeable about Christ, but you actually become more mature in Christ. And this should shape what we as individuals value in a church. So if you're an outsider, if you're not part of this church, you should be asking as you look at it, well, is this church oriented towards sanctification or is it oriented towards entertainment? Do you, uh, well, to come back to the centrality of the word, notice that the means by which People mature in Christ is the proclamation of Christ. That's what Paul says. Him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone that they might be mature in Christ. So the primary means given to the church for sanctification is the word of God. Jesus said, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. So there's no maturing in Christ apart from the proclamation of Christ and the teaching of Scripture. And so as a member of the church, you should be asking, am I part of creating a culture within the church that values sanctification? Do my words and actions demonstrate that I want to hear Christ proclaim, that I value when the hard truths of Scripture are taught, that I want to be convicted by the Word, that I want to be held accountable for my sin. And as you value those things as an individual, you'll be part of creating a wider culture in the church that reflects authentic Christian ministry. But if perhaps all of this just seems kind of beyond you or unapplicable, let me simply ask you this. Are you yourself toiling with all the energy that God gives you to be mature in Christ yourself? And part of me is like, I don't even need to preach this. You know, I'm just sufficiently convicted by the question of the text. You know, forget other people. Forget stewardship for others. What about the stewardship for my own life? What is the goal and the aim of your toil? What are you laboring for day in and day out? Can you say that with Paul, that I'm I'm laboring for, I'm toiling for, I'm striving for this to, to grow in the likeness to Christ. Is that the great ambition of your heart? Or is it lesser things, temporary things, passing things that are here today and gone tomorrow? And my goal is, is not to load us all with guilt. The Lord knows that I need grace here as much as anyone else in this building. But I do want to set before you a Christian ambition. Paul says in Philippians 3.12, not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Jesus Christ has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, 
But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That word perfect that Paul is using is the same word mature in Colossians. So yeah, we're not there. You know, Paul wasn't there. I'm not there. None of us are there. That's why Jesus died. That's why the gospel is a gospel of grace for sinners. Nevertheless, are we saying with Paul this morning, yes, I'm not there, but I press on to make it my own. Oh Lord, with everything that I have and with all that I am, let me strain forward to what lies ahead. Let me press on to the goal as a singular ambition and drive of my life to know Christ and to honor him. And the reason that this doesn't annul the gospel of grace is because it is rooted in the gospel. Paul says we press on to make it our own. Why? Because Jesus Christ has already made us his own. He died for you in love. Now live for him out of gratitude. He is worthy of your devotion. He's worthy of your obedience. And so in conclusion, as individual ambassadors of the church and, or of Christ and, and corporately as his church, my prayer is that our lives would be characterized and oriented by uh, a sacrificial love for others, that it would be uh, centered upon the word and bold proclamation, and that it would be oriented towards sanctification as we seek maturity in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for the riches of your grace towards us. And we know that, that you are indeed the, the headwaters from, from whence all true love comes. You've given us the, the chief and the ultimate example of what it means to love Lord, would you teach us to love? Would you teach us to selflessly seek the good of others? Uh, would you give us courage to boldly proclaim your word? Uh, and would we uh, be, our priorities and ambitions be refined, not to seek uh, earthly gain and uh, treasure, but to seek to be mature in Christ and to prioritize and to, to toil and, and strive for that which uh, is most important. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.